Live from Santa Monica, California, it is another live episode of Moving Past Trauma. Mover Nation, what's going on? Happy Wellness Wednesday. I have a fantastic guest. She's someone who I discovered on Instagram probably about a, about a year ago, and I'm very excited to have her on the program. Yes, it is Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, or as she's known, Dr. Z. Well, we're going to talk a lot about narcissism because she specializes in that. I'm going to read off her CV here in a second, but she's going to have a lot of great insight for y'all and for myself as well. I was really pleased to have her on the program uh, not too long ago on uh, Survivor Squad, and that episode will come out later. We're gonna talk about, she's watched my documentary a few times, and she has also um, you know, just been a, a really fantastic cheerleader for those who are struggling with mental health issues. This is Moving Past Trauma Live. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and let's get into it. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. We have had a big week in the true crime world, as y'all know. Uh, Lori Vallow was finally sentenced. Frustrating for me, and I think frustrating for everybody that was that was participating or, or was watching, whether in the courtroom or watching online, there was a lot of issues with you know her lack of accountability, which I'm going to talk a little bit about with Dr. Z. Here she is. All right, so I'm going to read off her CV because she has quite an impressive an impressive CV if you guys do not know her. So my guest today is Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, or Dr. Z, as she is known by her moniker online. She is a national expert in narcissistic abuse and a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialization in treating adults dealing with anxiety and mood disorders. Moreover, she is a highly sought after relationship coach catering to both men and women across the nation who have experienced or are currently experiencing narcissistic abuse in various relationship settings. Dr. Z is also the proud owner of the Z Group, a therapy practice that focuses on helping adults cope with mood disorders, anxiety, relationship challenges, and the everyday stresses of life. So honestly, I think Dr. Z could help all of us <laughs> with her specialties. So I am pleased and honored to welcome to the program, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. My God, it never ends. No worries. Usually I'm the one that sends the wrong link to people, so I'm glad that it, <laughs> that it oh, wasn't Oh, no, I, 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 you don't even want to. I logged into the link that everybody else is on watching right now. Oh, that's so funny. So you were, yeah. were you watching, so you weren't I watching was, yourself, but you were watching, watching me you. intro you. Correct. That's Yes. too funny that's too funny well thank you for figuring out the technical difficulties it's uh, it's fantastic so i was giving a little bit of your cv earlier one thing i didn't mention which is probably my favorite part of your cv is you're from philadelphia i am same as me yes i am born and <laughs> raised and then came back <laughs> born raised and came back yeah yes and at the end of the program, we'll do some rapid fire questions and um, and we'll find out who 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 is the ultimate uh, uh, the ultimate cheesesteak place for you. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> amongst other things, but, you know, I was I was explaining to the audience, Tara Newell and I interviewed you on Survivor Squad. 
and you were kind enough to join this live. Barely. One of the things you said to me, <laughs> one of the, one, well, but one of the things you said to me that was very flattering was that you had seen my film and that you would yeah. also message me and said, hey, I watched it again, by the way. So thank you for that. You know, your specialty lies in narcissistic abuse and dealing with patients who have who are sort of recovering from those relationships, whether they be with a spouse, you know, a, a, a romantic relationship or parental and, and help them really navigate that. So what I, I want to play some stuff from the film to get your sort of assessment. But why, why don't you tell everyone what you do and how you came into this work? Sure. So like you said, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a practice in Philadelphia, um, but I also do a lot of relationship coaching, particularly in the area of narcissistic abuse. So I help people who are either currently in a narcissistic abusive relationship, whether it's a parent, whether it's a significant other, um, friends, siblings, and I help them navigate that relationship, whatever that looks like for them. And I also help people who are on the other side, which we call post-separation abuse, who are struggling with kind of what happens after that separation. Because um, unfortunately, in these types of relationships, the abuse and the trauma, it doesn't just end once the relationship ends. So there's a lot of need for, um, you know, a lot of therapy and work even after you have removed yourself from the relationship. I can't hear you. Of oh, course there you we can, go. It was, of course you can, because it was muted. <laughs> For whatever reason, this is just we're fantastic technical, we're, technical we're, difficulties. We're good today. We're we're, we're good. batting a thousand. <laughs> we're as good as the Phillies are this year, right? <laughs> <laughs> but not as bad as the Mets. Um, baseball, baseball talk for those of you that may not know. Um, but uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, you must be quite busy because this is just you know I think in a post-pandemic world, mm -hmm. a lot of people are discovering what these personality traits are and how they affect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's something that definitely, you know, and I think we had talked about this during the lockdown, during the pandemic, when people couldn't leave their homes, yeah. um, you know, forget normal stress of losing your job and, and having money issues and your children home. And now you need to teach them things and, you know, you're not equipped to be a teacher. And so all of these things were happening regardless substance abuse was on the rise. And with that also domestic violence um, increased considerably uh, because of all the stress of the increase in substance abuse, but also because there was no escape, you know, it, People going to work oftentimes is, you know, an escape from the abuse they get at home. So they were home a lot with their abusive partner. And um, really all they had was social media to turn to for help. And I think that that's where um, I saw a huge benefit uh, from people going on social media, survivors sharing stories. You know, I, I, I always say the best support you can possibly get are stories from people who have gone through similar situations, hear their stories, hear the hope, and hear how they got to the other side of things. Um, and But I really did see this just, unfortunately, just kind of blow up during the pandemic, um, you know, and then continues to. So do you think these... Well, a couple of things. So 
One of the things that I struggled with my entire life, and since you've seen my film, we can totally talk about this, but one of the things that I, I really struggle with, with my father, I mean, you've seen the film, would you say that my father suffers from narcissistic personality disorder? Without treating him personally, I, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I know you can't give a clinical, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I think he also kind of borders on that sociopathic end of, of things as well given mm. what happened. Yeah. And just the lack of remorse and things like that. But one of the things that I always grew up with and I, and I, and I get, and I get a lot of questions about it through the podcast, but also just in life, just me growing up with people and then finding out what my story was. Mm -hmm. Is something like this hereditary? So there's a, there's, there's research on, on kind of that and also the development um, just your just developmental years and what you witness and things like that. So there is research that suggests that it is hereditary. There is research that suggests that there are brain differences. But then again, it begs the question, does your brain change as a result of your behaviors? Kind of what comes first? Majority of, you know, the, the research that I kind of gravitate towards is that it's, it's really kind of a product of your environment. Um, and you know, children, when we when we go through our, our upbringing, we develop strategies, right? We develop strategies to manage our day to day, to get through life. And so when you're dealing with parents who are neglectful or, you know, deal with substance abuse, with um, inconsistent emotions, uh, you know, withhold and love and withhold and love and kind of get that back and forth or physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, this coercive abuse that we talk about. When they are a part of that, children develop strategies to be able to survive, to get through life. And what happens is those strategies as you get through life, either you kind of adjust them as you get through life and you are no longer in that context anymore, therefore you don't need to use all of those strategies in the same way and they should be malleable. But if they, if you get to a point where they don't work anymore, but yet you're continuing to use them because it's familiar, because it's what you know, because maybe, you know, I, I stand by this and you actually, this is one of the things in your film that I, I want to point out to people because I, I, I know that a lot of people have questions of like, oh, well, if my parent was a narcissist, am I going to become a narcissist? Are my kids going to be narcissists? The, I cannot stress enough the importance of having one healthy parent. And you had your mom. The benefit of having a healthy parent, one stable, healthy parent, is so important because... That's all you really need. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to be affected, obviously, by the things you see and, and you know, by the way you're treated by the other parent. But having that one healthy, stable parent does so much for a child. It gives them that foundation. It gives them that base that they otherwise wouldn't have had. That's that's really interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, I mean, it must have And you worked. also had consistent supports throughout, too. I mean, you had a lot of, you were very fortunate in the sense that when you were put into a family, you really kind of found your place with them. And I think that you also had the benefit of that stability as well. And I kind of include that in that stable parent, even though they weren't, you know, actually your parents. 
Sure. I do think, you know, and there's a lot of things that, that are not really talked about in the film, but there was definitely the foster care situation oh, with my yeah, foster parents yeah. was had a lot of abuse and neglect and, and manipulation as yeah. well. So it was like that was on top. So when I and I've not really talked about this a lot. So this is probably the first time I'm really sharing this. But one of the things that I when I went to the the Ziegler's who I was awarded to who you see in the film, like I was, you're supposed to ease into a household as like going from foster care. You like you spend a day, then you have a dinner, and then you get then maybe a weekend, and then maybe after a couple months, you you know you kind of you know go into the home. I went over there, I met them. The next thing it was like uh, I, I was going to stay the night, which then led into two nights, and then I just said, "Can I just go get the rest? Of, can I just go get the rest of my shit? Yeah, and stay yeah. here because it was so bad in foster care. I was like, yeah. I don't care. I really don't care." what how this works out yeah. right now but yeah. this is so bad from where i'm coming from yeah that i need like uh, I, like i'm just gonna rip the band-aid but yeah. to advocate for yourself at that age within the foster system going what you've gone through is is you know just amazing yeah i think i was just and i think the thing was is i was just like really tired of it and i do talk a lot and i and i probably don't talk enough about it because I'm just as I slowly get into like this podcast and, and really sharing my story and there's, there's so many layers to this onion, I, I I don't discuss the issues with the foster care system, which is kids yeah. are kids are abused and kids are abused mm -hmm. far more than I was. Kids are neglected. Kids are families are taking in foster care children just to profit. Right. You know what I mean? And then you have you throw in the wonderful stew of the opioid epidemic and yep. and poverty and and it's just it's corruption whatever what have you there's a lot of issues that go to that and i realize you know again how fortunate i was and how for some reason i was advocating for myself despite mm -hmm. despite these adult figures but I, I had been dealing with the adult nonsense in my life for so long because with my real so obviously my father and then my mother is gone then my mother's family abandoning me and then my father's side of the family abandoning me and saying you're going to take rescind your testimony you were coached and i'm like I didn't imagine hearing him kill her. Mm -hmm. I didn't imagine his mm -hmm. behavior for, it's not like, I, like she disappeared and I didn't know what happened. Like I right. heard it happen. And for 25 days, I helped an investigator yeah. investigate it and find the clues to find her body. <laughs> like, you, you were one of the, um, how old, how old were you again? So I was 11. Testified? So I was 11 when it happened and 12 okay. when it went to trial. So it was almost 12 when it happened. So my son is, I figured it was around that age. My son just turned 11. I cannot fathom him having the like ability to 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 navigate that. And and the fact that you were able to get up and testify and the way you spoke, and I know people must tell you this all the time because it was so like just even the second time I watched, it, I was just kind of like, oh my, like wow, the way you speak and the way you articulate things, it was unbelievable given what was also going on and, and you know how you must have been feeling and what you were going through and yet you were able to do what you did again is just unbelievable well thank you my son I mean, is allowed like i said he would never he can't even like he doesn't even know what day it is like he, he could never <laughs> like he couldn't articulate like that it was just amazing <laughs> Well, I think that it, that also, I mean, thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. I think the thing that is that also is frustrating about that is people look at this and they go, oh, well, you know, 
you were obviously coached. You were obviously, they told you what to say. Obviously this, I was like, do you, do you understand how difficult it is to get up? I just had to give a deposition in a lawsuit not too long ago. And I, <laughs> I said to the lawyer, I said, this is like, I'm just the wrong person to have here. Cause I have such a memory and attention yeah. to detail, which is why my father's yep. incarcerated because I remember everything. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, but, but even then it was jarring for me. I was having a lot of anxiety and I just, to, to, to be able to stare down your abuser and, and I'm not, that didn't happen in the lawsuit, but I'm saying in the courtroom, like my father, who was my abuser, who, who took the life of my mother to stare them down and to think that somehow you can memorize some sort of script that someone told you that you need to say in these particular, yeah. I'm like, that's just, that's utterly fanciful. Like that's just, that's pure rubbish. Like you can't like, it's so difficult to, to even remember what date is when you're seeing yeah. it in the witness box. Yeah. So I think I was just really, I was just a really angry kid. Like, you're not going to get away with this. Not like angry at life, but angry at him. Like, you're not going to get away with this. Mm -hmm. Are you like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on this hill. If mm -hmm. I make, you know, making sure that you yeah. get what you, what you deserve. Um, which is, you know, I guess part of it. Um, well, I you know, you, you said your son, and so maybe I was just like some miracle baby or whatever, just a special kid. I mean, I think a lot of it is because my mother treated me like an adult growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people after they had seen the film said, Hey, you, um, uh, we want to talk to you about what, how, how you were the way you were. Do you realize this is because they have how your mother raised you? She didn't yeah. baby talk you. She made you. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't think of myself. I thought she was kind of being mean a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, I was an only child and and they my mom treated me like I was an adult. I did very adult things. I spoke very adult like. Um, yeah. And it was I, I'm, in retrospect, it probably seemed odd, you know, a little bit because I I don't think I probably presented as a like, you know, the kind of stereotypical kid. Cause yeah, I, I knew sure. things for better or worse. I don't know, but I, I knew things. I could talk about things. I traveled a lot with it. So I, I get that. I, I, I understand that. And I think that's why I'm saying, I think it makes a very big difference when you have that one parent. And I'm sure that her treating you like an adult was, you know, had a, had a, there's probably a lot of reasons behind that. You know, I think she, needed you in some way to know what was going on um, because it sounded like she was aware that this was a distinct possibility. Uh, and I think that she was yeah. kind of making you um, able to, to care for yourself in a way. Yeah. I can remember, <laughs> I can remember being a kid and calling the school to ask how to boil water because I wanted yeah. to make, macaroni cheese <laughs> i'm like do you put salt in it because yeah, right. my mom said put salt in it yeah and like you know but um yeah i mean my mother my mother's a cook and so so i remember doing that but i just kind of you know uh, that's interesting about the healthy parent so if you do have a healthy parent there is things can look up like that one parent stepping up and and being the support system for the child. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's not just the support system. It's the parent that gives you a schedule. It's the parent that is the voice of reason. It's the parent that you know that you can go to if you need to. It's the parent you can be most vulnerable with who's consistent. 
Like that it's, it's the consistency of the healthy parent that is really important. Knowing what you're going to get, not needing to walk on eggshells, knowing what behaviors result and what consequences. It's not arbitrary. Um, you know, it's not based in manipulation and it's, it's just really important to have that structure and that, that ability for a child to predict what comes next. Like you probably with your mom knew exactly what came next with every situation. It was very structured for you. Uh, and, and that's what children crave. That's why when you have parents who get divorced and one parent is a narcissist, when the children come home from the narcissist's house or wherever they're staying, the stable, healthy parent, let's say, the non-abusive partner, ends up having to kind of really just reset the children because they come back from this really tumultuous, emotionally dysregulated household. And then they come back to the stable parent. Imagine that parent was equally as unpredictable and emotionally abusive, physically abusive. Then you don't know which end is up, but you know that if you go back to that house, you're gonna that you kind of have to recalibrate. They recalibrate you in a way, and they you know to send you back again at some point, unfortunately. But they have the ability to reground you, and that is huge because even if it's a really difficult upbringing, you knew that, you know you, you knew that you had that one parent to go to that would make things predictable again for you. And there's comfort in that. And children need that. They thrive on structure. They need it. Is there a predictability with it with, um, oh, well, that's, that's great Intel, by the way. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Is there a, is there predictability in, on the flip side with like a, not necessarily an abusive parent, but let's say you have a dad that's not an alcoholic, right? And you got to constantly take care of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about, uh, you, I, I, I mean, I don't want to bust anybody out, but I've had friends, I have people in my life who had alcoholic parents, right? And they're, they're pretty well grounded themselves. They're not drinkers. They're not, mm -hmm. but they, there was this like burden of responsibility with them and their sis brothers or sisters like, okay, dad's drunk again. So we got to take care of them. And yeah, they, I mean, they have problems. They have issues like we all do, but like they, there was that consistency that they knew it was a Thursday. Dad was going to be drunk and yes. passed out. You know, is that also the flip side of this, that consistency? It's really the consistency of it. So it's predictable. Well, I think with that, the consistency of it is still not within your control, right? Like you still don't know if how dad's going to be, if it, you know, you still have that it's, it's predictable, but it's not within your control. So it's still, it, it's like this illusion of control. Right. And children oftentimes sure. rely on that illusion of control because sometimes that's all they have. Um, so I think it's it's a, that in the, I think what you're talking about is more of a survival strategy that the child or the children mm. develop in yeah. order to just get through it. Um, but I don't think that's the kind of structure that results in healthy development. That's more of a survival strategy that they figured out that on Thursdays this happens, so we need to do this, or we need to go to a friend's house, or we we need to ignore him on Thursdays. I mean, that's more survival. That's not necessarily healthy structure. Yeah, good to, good to point that out. <laughs> good to point that out. <laughs> I didn't mean to suggest that somebody somebody had said they love the photos of my mom that I share, so I, oh. I just kind of put one up to the 
Uh, camera, if I can. She see was that. so beautiful, and she, she really was, was so well put together. She really was. Yeah, yeah. She really was. I don't know what happened over here, but <laughs> <laughs> at least with the well put together part. Um, kidding. Uh, but no. In all seriousness, um, uh, yeah. I guess. I guess it is that survival mechanism. You know, they always say that children are so resilient. Is that is that true, or do you? You know, I, I don't know how long you've been doing this work for. How, how long have you been doing this work for? Since 2007 or six. So about like 15, 16, 17 yeah. years. Are you seeing, you know, with the, with the prominence or the rise in social media, are you seeing that, that children, and not speaking of your own children, but, mm. but children in general, and I'm sure you, you deal with them, um, are, are becoming less and less resilient and more and more reliant on certain things around them? I don't have so, any children, so I'm asking this as a Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, so do I think children, okay, so I actually, I actually don't, so social media is a whole separate issue. I think there's a lot of actual brain changes that are taking place in children. I think that they're way less patient. They're so used to immediate results you know, and, and so I think you, I would imagine, I mean, and I see it in my own kids, you, the ability to sit with and tolerate discomfort, the ability to be bored, which is a skill, um, and not need to do something right away to get rid of it. I think you're going to see a rise in anxiety because I think children, what ends up happening is they're so used to that quick fix, getting what they need on social media and the way it's, it, you know, the way it's developed in general, um, I think you, I know, I mean, I know there's a huge increase in mental health in children because of things like that. Um, forget the bullying and the self-comparison aspect of social media, but just the cognitively, the way, you know, it, it, it works on your brain is definitely showing an increase in anxiety and depression. Now, as far as I think children are more or less resilient, I think I think one, it depends on the temperament of the child. And I think it, de it depends on the environment they're in. What I will say though, is that I do think that parents in general, um, we, there's this concept called psychological immunity. I can't take credit for it, but um, it's fascinating because one of the things that started happening was I would see these college students, right? Or like these 18 year olds just going to college and they would come into my office and they were absolutely paralyzed with anxiety, paralyzed. And you would expect the level of anxiety that they had. And this was, they had actually done, there was a whole article on this too. Um, this isn't just my, you know, my observations, but you would expect their family to have been just totally dysregulated, so unhealthy and just, you know, a recipe for intense anxiety. And what people were finding was these children actually came from pretty, you know, you know, as normal as, I don't even know what normal is anymore, but, but <laughs> healthy, right? Like healthy families that even if there was tension or dysfunction, sh shouldn't have resulted in that level of anxiety and depression. Um, and what, what people started realizing and through research was that there, and, and it's, more likely a generational thing than not. But what parents were doing was depriving their children during their upbringing 
of being able to learn how to self-regulate their emotions on their own. Meaning they were, they, they had no psychological immunity. So they get to college um, or they leave their house and something happens emotionally, let's say, they don't know how to handle it and they just crash. So for example, um, you know, these parents would, if the child got in trouble at school or if the child had a fight with their friends, parents pick up the phone, handle the situation for them because the parent themselves is so uncomfortable with seeing their child uncomfortable, which I completely get, right? I, I you know, the, the claws come out. I understand that fully, but it's a whole different thing to, to actually handle it for your child. Being there for them, yes, consistently, but handling it for them. Because what it does is a couple things. It sends a message to your child that, they, that as a parent, you don't think your child's capable of handling this. You're depriving them the opportunity to just feel like shit and figure out how to regulate their emotions and see that you don't, nothing bad happens from just feeling something. The bad stuff happens is when you act in service of trying to get rid of that icky stuff. So they were depriving children of this, of this ability to regulate. And I think that that's what we see a lot of now. Um, in addition to social media, right? So I think it's just this kind of, I don't know, perfect storm, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and it's actually frowns upon when you're not like that. I was always called the, I was the mean mom. I was the mean mom. And it, it wasn't that I was the mean mom. I just, I let my kids kind of, they knew I was there for them, but I, I it was, it's an important skill to learn and they don't teach that in school. Why? I don't know. But they don't teach children how to regulate emotions in school. Why is that? Do you have like five hours? I, I mean, was going to say, that is like, like opening a can of worms, think, I'm sure. Because there's still a stigma attached to it. I think people don't understand it. I think that, you know, it's, I think something that they feel like isn't academic and therefore we're not going to teach it here. And I see there's a slow improvement with it, but I mean, for some reason, you know, geometry is is more important. I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, my, my son came home and they learned about something. I don't even know who this person was. I don't even know what it was. It was something that he will never, ever, 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 ever use, ever. It was like, I, I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something that was just so, I guess he's like, do I need to remember? I'm like, honestly, it's never going to matter. I would much rather children know how to do that and regulate their emotions and teach them how to be mindful and teach them some strategies and skill sets than like, I don't even know, learn about different types of rocks. I, I mean, you know, my two cents is a psychologist, but that's, I don't, I think they just don't teach it. I don't think they think it's their responsibility. And I think they look at it as not academic. So would you say though, that like learning how to be bored and, and it's, it's interesting that you, were, you mentioned this because I literally pulled something up the other day and I, I always take these little like quotes or tropes from, so, you know, social media people post and I just like scan them and put them in like a little notepad, right on my phone. And they were talking literally about boredom, like mm -hmm. allowing kids to be bored, Yep. allowing kids, you know, do you think that this, you know, like, how does that, how does that, we, obviously we probably really don't even know how this is affecting our people yet, our young people. I wouldn't, I, I think maybe we're just starting to do that. Is that correct? 
as far as children not learning how to be bored. Oh yeah, as far yeah. as this constant, consistent like gratification from social yeah. media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we know that it's rewiring brains. We know that it's it's changing chemicals. I mean, every time, like, there's a reason why your email has a little red number, right? There's a reason on your phone why social media apps you see again the little red signal that you have whatever a message or something but you have to actually go into the app to get it right and so there's a reason for that it's these quick dopamine fixes right and so it makes you feel like you get that temporary rush and then it goes away you temporary rush and it goes away but that constant fluctuation can be really damaging i mean it's it's you're constantly seeking that out which is why children just to sit with discomfort is such a foreign concept to them because they're so used to this, as you said, this immediate gratification on such an inconsistent interval. So if you think about it, if you take like a, with substance abuse, right, it's that inconsistent model. It's, it's kind of the same thing. It's this, which is the same thing with narcissistic abuse. It's this inconsistency, this intermittent reinforcement, we call it, where it's like, you never know what you're going to get. And it's these quick fixes of dopamine and taken away. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. So it really just kind of keeps you guessing and always kind of hyper vigilant and depriving children of the ability to just sit with it, just sit. I mean, we feel it too. If I forget my phone, I feel absolutely 100% just completely off. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I cannot tolerate not having my phone on me. Even if I don't use it, I just feel completely out of, I don't know, out of sync. You know, it's interesting you, were, <laughs> you say that. My, I, I have my phone. I feel out of sync too without my phone because like my music is synced to it. So yeah. I'm always listening to music. And I actually was thinking the other day, I was like, what if I got like an old school iPod? I'm sure I have one somewhere. And started just carrying that around. So I'm not yeah. literally, because I don't like the phone in ways like, sometimes I'm just annoyed with people. I turn on airplane right. mode and then people are like, why couldn't I get a hold of you? Why didn't yeah. the message go right. through? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like Tim, Timothy Ferris, you know, will, you know, he does these, all these videos and, you know, he wrote four hour work week and for all these, you know, podcasts and whatever, it doesn't matter. But he's very famous in the world of self productivity, right? And he talks about like you put, putting your phone on airplane mode while you're doing work. So nothing comes through. So no one bothers you. And I, it's like, you almost feel guilty for doing that in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, you're like, what, like yep. you know, now people can't get a hold of me. Are they going to, you yep. know, going to be a knock on my door? Like somebody's going to come looking for me or right. <clears throat> what is that? You know, uh, it, it, it's very, it's, I think it's very challenging to be a parent right now. And I think it's just I, it, challenging period to be anything right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just think everything's harder right now. Okay. So that leads me into my, my sort of next, you know, and I, and I don't know, are you into true crime at all? Do you follow true crime I, stories and things? Yes. Okay. I didn't want to assume so. <laughs> I didn't want to make a gender based assumption, but. <laughs> nope. I am. Very, yeah. No. <laughs> um, so uh, do you think that these, these quick dopamine fixes, the, the, the rise of social media, the lack of being able to self-regulate and boredom and things like that. Do you think that is sort of, and, and children, like you just were telling the story of a, of a child's parents getting on the phone to regulate an interaction that they've had with a friend they've fallen out mm -hmm. with, which is like the dumbest thing ever. Mm -hmm. Like you have to learn how to handle this. But I, I do notice 
you know, I'm I, so I, I really haven't been on like major film sets in probably a couple of years due to the pandemic and things like that. So it's probably like 2021. Um, and just also with starting the podcast and things, but I do remember like dealing with younger actors and just seeing like a lot of, and these are social people, right? And they're out and about, but there mm -hmm. was just this, sometimes there was just this this social awkwardness that I, and I was like, I don't want to feel like the old man, but I'm like, I didn't do that when I was that age. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I would go talk to people and I was very, you know, learning and very much into discovery where everything seems to be almost introverted, like, or mm -hmm. Introverted is probably the wrong word, more solipsistic than anything, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, with the social media and the likes and everything. So they're just in their own world and they don't know how to just have this physical interaction. Yeah. Do you think this can lead to rises in violence? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I think it leads to imp increased impulsivity. I don't necessarily sure, know sure. if that channels directly into violence. Does it at some point? Yes, but that doesn't mean it always will. I mean, increased impulsive behavior could mean something like, you know, driving erratically and the consequences of that, right? Or um, drug use or eating too much or just, you know, being really careless when you're sending an email because, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it can translate into a whole host of other things. I, I don't think it necessarily makes someone directly violent. I, I think there's a lot of other things involved in that, but I do think it's, I know it increases impulsivity and poor judgment making. So is violence part of that? Yeah. I mean, yes, that could lead to increased violence for sure. Well, yeah, because I'm wondering because of this impulsivity and then you have also this not feeling like heard or, res or quote, respected or, yeah. or, you know, like, oh, you didn't validate my message. You didn't get back to me. They didn't get back to me right away. I saw mm -hmm. they have a red receipt. I know they mm -hmm. read it. You know, I mean, I've, I've been guilty of that. been like, well, they got the sure. red receipts turned on. Like, what's going on? You yeah. know, so I think that. Um, that's a really, like, that's a really good point as with the text message aspect. I never looked at it like that, actually, that the yeah. impulse, yeah. Well, it's almost like this um, entitlement. You I, know, was, for I, lack I was just going to say entitlement. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I think when I look at, you know, situations of, you know, like, what was the whole, what was the whole thing? Was it, was it like at NYU or was it some very prestigious school? Where they, where all the kids got, you know, nobody got an A or everybody failed because this, the class was so hard and the teacher was removed from the faculty for giving lower grades to these kids. And everyone was like, are you kidding me? And these parents complained because their kid didn't get an A and things of that nature. And it's like, well, yeah, your kid didn't pass. <laughs> no one got an A because your kids didn't pass the test. And mm -hmm. they were angry about that. And I thought, what a bad example for parents to set for children of like you can go and complain your way out of a a, a grade and get and throw a temper tantrum and then yeah. get someone fired because you didn't get what you wanted and is that the world that we're leaving <laughs> that we're saying is okay i for mean people to i taught undergrad for a couple of years for a while actually and i can tell you i had parents calling me about their children's grade and and i was thinking if my my parents that never would, that wasn't even a thing. I mean, they, the thought of my parents calling a professor of mine, I, I, no, it just, it didn't happen. So I, I think it goes to what I was saying, kind of 
that, that psychological immunity. I mean, I was floored the first time I ever had a, a parent email me questioning me about their kid's grade who's like a junior in college. It was, and it, every year. So like 21, 21 year 20, old person. Yeah, like every, <laughs> old I don't even my parents knew my grades. Like they didn't even know my classes are, let alone my professor's <laughs> name. Like what, you know, I didn't even know my professor's name. And so like, I feel like it got progressively worse every year. It got more and more. Um, and it was, it, you know, it was, it was mind numbing to me. I could not believe, and I would have students even email me like very um, disrespectful emails with this sense of entitlement about their grades. And it's like, you, you never did the project or, you know, you, you, you failed the test or you'd never come to class. Like what kind of, what do you expect? And it was, there was this entitlement aspect. And I, and I think that's part of the, the parents kind of handling things for them. Um, I think that's that lack of accountability. Um, it's just, it was, it was very enlightening. And it's that lack of accountability that just seems to be going out the window. Mm -hmm. I was in a discussion with someone the other day and I was holding their feet to the fire for something. Um, and they, they wrote back to me in a text message. I, I've just had a very traumatic year. I, yeah. I, I'm willing to talk. I'm willing to talk about it. And, and they yeah. have had a traumatic year and they've been through some really tough stuff, but essentially they were saying, um, uh, you know, uh, I will only talk if, it, if I'm not being talked down to, not being spoken to in this way. And they've, done, they've, they've screwed something up. And I'm trying to get to the point of like, hey, how can we reconcile this? And they say, well, but I don't want to engage. Uh, I've had a very traumatic year. I'm just getting my self-esteem back. This, and this is a grown adult. And I didn't even respond to the message because I thought to myself, I, what do I do with that? Like you're, you're trying to say, I'm blaming, am I blaming you? Am I supposed to feel bad and be like, oh, I'm sorry, because you've done, you've gone through shit that everyone goes through. You've had health issues. You've had family. Like, I'm sorry that you've had this, but why does that excuse you for not doing what you're supposed to do? Or, and, and then we can't even talk about it. Like you, mm -hmm. you're, you're shutting down the line of communication just to say that. And I'm like, I, I don't even know how to respond to this. I, I'm not, I didn't respond to it. I'm like, I, what am I supposed to say? You're, yeah. you're clearly saying I don't want to talk or be a, held accountable for anything. It's very frustrating. And I'm yeah. like, what are we doing? What are we doing? But speaking of that lack of accountability. So did you, did you follow this Lori Vallow Daybell trial? I mean, it just absolutely horrific. She I was sentenced today, right? She was sentenced on Monday. On Monday. Okay. And I, I think a lot of people were very surprised. Um, you know, because she spoke for like 10 minutes and I want to play an excerpt of it and I want to play my father. Um, but I want to, I want to play an excerpt and I, and I do want to preface this. I, there are a lot of people that listen to this program that are religious or Christian and, and she uh, obviously identifies with Christianity or some version of Latter-day Saints or something like that. And religion was a very big part in this, in this, yeah. in these killings and things of that nature, which is just horrific. But a lot of people, vilify religion because of this and i don't because it's the the bible didn't do this she did this and this this you know they're they're, they're psychopaths right but they she she weaponizes this religion in this in this particular statement and i wanted to play this just because i because i just think it's so indicative of the narcissism and, and then then my father uh after but i want to mm -hmm. discuss with you if that's all right so i'm gonna we're gonna pull up this fancy little video here Fallow, before I impose sentence, if you choose, you may address the court. Jesus knows me, and Jesus understands me. 
I mourn with all of you who mourn my children and Tammy. Jesus Christ knows the truth of what happened here. Jesus Christ knows that no one was murdered in this case. Accidental deaths happen. Suicides happen. Fatal side effects from medications happen. I have a different perspective in life because in 2002, when I was pregnant with Tylee, I died in the hospital while in labor with her. They tried to stop my labor. They put me on the table and they put something in my IV and I felt my spirit falling to the floor. I was standing near my pregnant body, watching the doctors try to revive me, which took them a few minutes. In that time, my sister Stacy was standing to my left. I turned to hug her and was surprised that her spirit was as tangible as a physical body because I knew I was in spirit and she was in spirit. She said she needed to show me some things and we went to heaven. So <laughs> there's a lot, there's a there's lot a there, lot. but I think for me, the thing that, uh, that struck me is just the absolute, just, I, I don't want to use the term crazy, but I do want to use the term just disturbing is the fact that she is saying that she mourns just like everyone else mourns. Like she's just made herself the absolute victim. I mean, the um yes i completely agree and i also i mean if you if you're listening and i don't know if it's just because like you and i are probably but <laughs> this is all we look you know listen for in here but sure, I sure. Mean, that was all about her there i mean that i don't even know at the end it didn't even make sense anymore i mean it, it literally was so self-focused self-absorbed and having nothing to do with religion. It was just so all about her, the entitlement aspect, the lack of accountability, that her story is the most important thing right now. You have yeah. time to speak to everybody in this courtroom and, and you choose that, actively choose that. I think that's telling in and of itself. Yeah. But do you, do you think it's telling of the fact that it's, it's not only about her, but I mean, she believes this while she's saying it. And that's, I think what is really chilling to me. Yeah. So, you know, we, oh, I'm probably going to get yelled at for this, but you know, we talk about cult violence. We talk about what happens to them. We talk about the, the brainwashing that happens. We talk about the actual neurological and cognitive changes that happen. Um, so do I believe that she believes this? Yes. Do I use that as an excuse to her doing what she did? No, because there's plenty of people that have very strong religious beliefs that maybe you and I think are like just weird or, or crazy or sure. whatever you want to call whatever you want to call it. Sure. And that still doesn't excuse violent behavior. It just doesn't. It doesn't excuse abuse. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. And I have friends that are religious and they're very religious. And yeah. they, they wouldn't do any anything Correct. to anyone. And they Correct. just they lead a life and they're and they're they they feel very good in that and that and yeah. and they're very loving and accepting people. Yeah. They would never do anything like this. And just no. to hear her weaponize, and I caught a little bit out because she was reading scripture in the beginning, and I was like, you know, judge not let yes, lest ye be judged, and all this, yeah. you know. But I just, um, it just struck me because in the film, in the film Murder Mansfield, I confront my father and, you know, I, I read him that letter that I wrote him when I was a child, asking him to confess and just so I can move on with my life and, and so he could move on. Mm -hmm. And he also did the exact same thing. And I want to mm -hmm. just also play this little snippet and then we can talk about this because mm -hmm. it just, it's, and, and when you say cult, you know, my father was not part of something particularly like that. But when my father is saying these things to me, he believes it with absolute conviction as well because he's been in his, his own head and, and can, can someone convince them of themselves? So, so let me just play this and, and, and we'll just so refused holding the letter up to him. Asking him why? Why? I can't give you an explanation why I refused that in 1993, but I think it's fair to say I was angry about a lot of things. I was in a spot, probably broken as I could possibly be, low as I could possibly be, uh, away from family and friends. Uh, significant enough that uh, I had considered killing myself. I had considered suicide. But that would not have resolved anything. It would have left you with certainly unanswered questions. I am really sorry that uh, I have caused you so much harm. I honestly am. Uh, every day I'm filled with remorse. It's my own failures, my own bad thinking. Uh, all of the uh, really bad lifestyle that I was living. So... <laughs> Um, what do you, uh, you know, again, it goes right back to him. I'm, <laughs> I'm a victim. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, it's, it's the, the entitlement aspect and the victim aspect. It, it's, it's, you know, I always say, look at the underlying function, meaning the, the why, not so much the words being used on the surface because sure. it's a lot of manipulation or gaslighting or, but if you really look at the function of, of what, why the behaviors are occurring or what's being said is being said in that moment. Um, you know, I, I think that it was obvious that, you know, I think he's trying to tug at your heartstrings because he knows that you are a very empathetic and good person. Um, I think that the, you know, saying that he was in a dark place and he tried to to kill himself, but but he he didn't want to do that because you need answers. You would have been left confused, but then he's not giving you answers anyway, right? Yeah. So I I think if you listen to the function of it, I think a lot of what he was saying to kind of get you off of the um to try to kind of push you back a little bit. Yeah. And you know, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but when he when I come into the when he comes into the room in the film, like he's in a very good mood, and he's 
he thinks that I'm literally making a film to help him get out of prison. Right. <laughs> Which right. Which is just like so bananas to me. It was I never told him that, you know. Um but well, also he, when he wrote you the letter to that he wanted you to, you know, speak on his behalf. Yeah. Remember Absolutely. getting, you know, like that was another thing that it just kind of goes along with this, that it's all about how it relates to benefiting them. And we are just kind of objects to, you know, use to get what you need. How do you combat that? How do you, what are some, some sort of very basic strategies that people can use to recognize this behavior and to avoid it as much as possible? In, in the, in other people? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it, it's definitely hard. Um, and so I think knowing that it's hard is, is, is the first thing. Knowing that it hurts is the second thing. Um, because listen, most people are good people, right? And so we, we have to be acknowledge that it's this kind of behavior is going to make us upset. Um, but it's very important to understand that it has nothing at all to do with you. Absolutely nothing. It's this would, you could interchange you with someone else and, and the same thing would happen. So for people to understand that it has nothing to do with them, usually it's about power. It's about control. It's about manipulating the other person. Right. So when you're faced with those kinds of things, that's where boundaries come in. You know, and when we talk, there's been a whole thing about boundaries lately, right? All over social media about the difference between boundaries and rules and all that crap. So when you set a boundary, you want to make sure that the boundary has nothing at all to do with the other person, right? Like your dad's going to continue to do what your dad has always done. There's nothing you can do to create change in his world. You don't have access to his world. You will never be able to create change in his world. But for you, there's things that you can do so that you can walk away from a situation. And this goes for anybody, not just, you know, but you have to come up with ways to do what you need to do, get what you need to get in the most effective manner so that you can walk away feeling at ease, feeling at peace, knowing you did everything that you possibly can. Um, and, and boundaries also are, are, they fluctuate, right? And they change based on your mood and how you feel. And so that's how they're different than rules. But with boundaries, you know, it can be anything from, you know, for example, somebody saying, um, you telling somebody, I'm not going to talk to you anymore if you continue to scream at me. So they start talking normally again, and but then they start screaming. And so you don't respond. That had nothing to do. They're going to keep screaming, right? But you set a boundary so that mm -hmm. you are letting them know what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept, how you're willing to be treated and, what, and, and how you're not willing to be treated. And then it's up to you to maintain that consistency because the worst thing you can do is set inconsistent boundaries, right? Because... It, then you get that back and forth and you actually end up creating more of the behavior you're trying to stop. So if somebody's screaming at you and you say, I'm not going to talk to you. And so you don't, but then the next time they scream, you continue to argue with them. They're just going to scream more and more and more. So you have to make sure they're consistent, but it is never to change the other person's behavior. It's for you to be able to walk away or be in that situation feeling as in control as you possibly can. And if we wait for other people's behaviors and wait for their responses in order to feel in control, we never are going to be in control.
right? Like, cause we can't control anybody else, what they say, what they think, their internal workings, but we can control ourselves. And so you need to figure out the best way to, to, to give that to yourself. And that's by changing your own behavior. Sage advice. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's my long-winded answer. No, I mean, but you know, but absolutely it's, it's, it, you got to kind of shift your perspective and, 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 you know, get out as gracefully as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. Just yep. at the end of the relationship with the narcissist is when it ends up really becoming the nastiest, right? Yes. At the end of the relationship, the post separation, because they now know that you see them. And when you truly see a narcissist and, and their behaviors and their, you, you see that blueprint. Cause once you see that blueprint, you can't ever unsee it. Right. Once you see that you start connecting the dots and you figure out the patterns, you're never going to unsee it. And so when a narcissist realizes that you see them, that part of you that that they don't want anyone to see, once they know that you know them, that's when they will do anything they possibly can to make sure that they maintain that power over you because the as soon as you leave or you figure them out, that's where they lose control over you. Right at that moment when they see that they think that you figured them out, they lose control. And that doesn't mean they still can't, you know, do things and say things and upset you, but ultimately they lost control, which is why they then go for other things to do, like go after the children, drag you through family court, um, you know, smear your character all over town and, you know, post pictures with their new boyfriend or girlfriend immediately on social media. So they find things to still get at you. But the reason why they're doing that is because they know that, you know, and that they have lost control over you. They can't do anything now to hurt you. And that's where you get the rage. And that's, you know, when they, that's where you get the, the just, you know, trying to destroy you in a sense so that people don't believe you. They try to ruin your credibility so that no one will believe you. Yeah. It's a smear campaign, right? Yep. 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 And they, you know, and listen, like they use their friends, they use the people that don't see that side of them, right? They try to make you sound like you're the crazy one. Um, you have a mental health problem. You have a drug problem. You're unstable. Um, and their friends around them will support those those opinions and they will spread the word for them. Uh, so it's very tricky. You know, it's, it's very hard to not be bothered by that. But I tell people, never, ever, ever try to correct the smear campaign. That is exactly what they want. And you'll end up by trying to do that, prolonging it, making it worse. You really just, you want to, as, as hard as it may be, not defend it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they embarrass you. Oh, <laughs> or they try right. to. Oh, yeah. Yep. And speaking of embarrassing moments, somebody wrote here. Uh, by the way, I recently saw Collier's music video. Collier, you have such a beautiful voice. A very good video. <laughs> I did this music video. Thank you so much. I worked with Billy Ray Cyrus on like my, one of my first music videos uh, like eight years ago. And he gave me a song and I made it into a, into a music video and recomposed it for guitar and voice for this project that I was doing at the time. Um, <laughs> And it's apparently still out on YouTube and it's like, I, I, I've got, oh, it's so funny. <laughs> Somebody found it. They're like, hey, it's check amazing. this out. 
I got to do another one. I got to do something much better than that because we did that like over the course of like a day and on no sleep and we were doing is traveling through the desert and the whole project. But anyways, um, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining the program. So uh, really fast, a couple of questions mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Genos or Pats? Genos. Genos. Like no. And then, and then do we do, is it wit whiz? Is that? Whiz. Whiz. Whiz, whiz wit. Whiz wit. Okay, so for those that uh, that are not in the Philadelphia area, what are, what are we talking about? What <laughs> like, is this language what? we're speaking? <laughs> whiz, cheese whiz. And yes. you want cheese whiz on your cheese steak because there's no other way to eat it at <laughs> all. I, ever. And I, <laughs> and I completely disagree, but that's okay. <gasps> what? I can't do it. I told you I'm a provolone guy. Like my mother always got me and, and I we used to get there's a place in Ardmore called uh, Eagle Pizza and we used to go to Eagle Pizza. I used to go with my grandfather actually and, and we would get cheesesteaks from there and they would put provolone on them. So I'm a provolone guy. I, I get can't. extra sides of whiz. That's how much I believe in that. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. Um, butterscotch cakes or the um, candy cakes? Butterscotch. Butterscotch, those are my mom's favorite too. This is a tasty cake that we're referring you, to. Yep, you rub the top so that it doesn't stick on the paper. And when you take it out, there's a whole method. It's a pro tip, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I recently was going through through some photos that I was going to put on my Patreon. And um, about, about like four years, I guess 2017, 2018, sorry, 2018, I was filming in Independence Hall with like our own private security it was after hours. It was really, really cool. And then we went over to Liberty Bell and we filmed and as everyone was cleared out, I went and touched the Liberty Bell, which is a big no, no. Mm -hmm. But I found a photograph of myself as a child with my hand on the Liberty Bell. So I've officially touched the Liberty Bell twice. How many times have you touched the Liberty Bell? I none that I remember, but that doesn't really? mean I didn't. No, I definitely don't have a memory of that either way. So I can't answer that. Oh, all right. I actually well. don't even know the last time I've seen the Liberty Bell, to be honest with you. <laughs> like a fourth grade field trip. It's so bad. Oh, that's funny. Well, I was I was there right after you all won the Super Bowl. So you guys were, oh, whole town yeah. was was uh, was just going crazy still. That was fun. A month still. later. <laughs> yeah, that was that was good fun. My guest today is Dr. Jamie Zuckerman or Dr. Z Psychologist. How can my audience find you? Um, I'm on Instagram, Dr. Z Psychologist, uh, and TikTok, and my website's drjamiezuckerman.com. Fantastic. Hey, we were, we made it through all the technical difficulties. Oh, man. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fan, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for, um, Thank you. for joining the program. I greatly appreciate it. Anytime. And I will have links to all of Dr. Z's uh, uh, links to her website and her link tree in the show notes of today's episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to give a special shout out to all of my channel members, all my channel subscribers, all my Patreon members. Without you guys, this channel, this podcast would not be possible. So thank you so much for your support, just like you were supporting NPR, which is one of my favorite stations in the world. Of course, um, KCRW 89.9 right behind me at uh, Santa Monica College. 
But in all seriousness, thank you so much. Uh, your your contributions and your support of this program and just sharing it with others listening. Please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you would be so kind. And remember to like and subscribe. Click that button right below and cling the, click the bell for alerts. I greatly appreciate it. All your support helps me to bring wonderful guests like Dr. Jamie Zuckerman to the program and give you guys just this amazing wealth of knowledge that somebody like her brings to the world of, of narcissism and, and mental health in general. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright, Collier Landry.